2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord said to Nathan, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The word of the Lord. My regular habit in, on Sunday mornings is uh, I come to church early and I, I print out my sermon. Um, and this morning, there was no internet. And so, you know, when technology starts going funky, like there's a couple things happening. Either, you know, uh, Satan is trying to stop me from preaching or God is trying to protect me from saying something really stupid. So, um, so <laughs> you be the judge uh, uh, this morning. But this is part two of a two-week series, kind of mini-series within, within our whole series on the life of David um, which is going to end next week. And so last week, uh, I called it L'Affaire Bathsheba, part one, and we looked at really what is the beginning of David's fall from grace, right? Everything up to that point in David's life was coming up roses, um, and then all of a sudden, uh, this, this incident happens with Bathsheba, and the rest of his life is this downward spiral. And so we saw last week David's fall from grace and what it taught us about why we sin, and the effects of that sin, what those are. And, 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 and we see this, this rapid fall and this, this catastrophic effect that David's behavior has on, on his kingship and his kingdom. And so what started with this lustful gaze ended by the end of chapter 11 with the murder of one of David's most loyal and trusted soldiers and, and several other soldiers along with him in this attempt to cover up David's crime. And so we're left, one, we're left wondering after that, well, what is God going to do with 
David. And how is David any different than Saul who came before him? And how can we still say that David is a king, a man after God's own heart? After we see what it reveals about his heart and what he does with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it ended with these ominous words concerning what David had just done. The last verse is, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So last week, it was looking at the causes and effects of sin. But this week, in part two of this episode, we're going to examine how we, conf- how we can confront and deal with and overcome sin. And so there's two things that we're going to look at. First, Nathan's parable and how we can confront sin. And second, David's reaction and what it teaches us about dealing with and overcoming our sin. So first, Nathan and, and the confrontation with, with sin. How do we do that? Now, when we put the words confrontation and sin in a sentence, it might conjure some, you know, less than pleasant images in your mind. When I read that, I thought of uh, back to my days on the University of Minnesota campus, and we would receive the annual visits from Brother Jed. And Brother Jed was a practitioner, and in many ways he was a pioneer of a practice which he dubbed confrontational evangelism. And basically, you stand on a bench in the middle of the quad, and you yell King James verses, King James version of the Bible verses at people, warning them that they are going to hell. And Brother Jed, I mean, when I say he was a pioneer, he literally wrote the book on confrontational evangelism. It's a book called Who Will Rise Up? It is available still for free on the internet, on a website that looks like it is straight out of 1997. It, it's, it's, it's perfect, and it's, it's as good or as bad as you might expect. So it's chock full of parables, uh, warning you know, young college men of the dangers of women like Lustful Lisa and Rock and Roll Rhonda and Daiquiri Daisy and Pothead Paula. I'm not joking. And how they are just waiting to lure unsuspecting young men into fornication, which is one of Brother Jed's favorite words. And... They're just waiting there, and they're going to ruin, trap, and ruin these otherwise promising lives. And so Jed was famous for the uh, uh, arguments he'd spark and the mockery he'd invite. But for all that, I have to admit that I admire the guy's chutzpah, right? It takes a lot of chutzpah to stand on a bench and yell at people as they're walking by you. And and I'm glad that we live in a country where someone can do that, you know, where, 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 where someone can stand there and yell at people even when you don't like what they're saying or what you're, you're hearing. And I mean, if we're evaluating the effectiveness of this technique, we can say, well, of course this didn't work. When we're thinking of campus ministries, if we're judging trees by their fruit, how are they drawing people to repentance into a, a, a relationship with God? You know, we have to say that if we're judging a tree by its fruit, brother, brother's tree was almost barren. And despite years and years of yelling Bible verses at people and telling them they were going to hell, people weren't responding. And if we're judging the effectiveness of campus ministries, we'd we'd have to give the nod to things like Campus Crusade, now Crew, or InterVarsity, of which uh, Amy and I and Megan Swanson, proud alums, absolutely. They, They did a much better job of sharing the good news on campus. But even if the, con- the uh, confrontational evangelism style of Brother Jed doesn't work, 
The truth remains that sin must be confronted if it is to be overcome. So instead of looking to Brother Jed for insight on how we can do this, we can look instead to Brother Nathan, the prophet who comes to David at the beginning of our passage. And he doesn't just go to David. The text, read, and the text reads, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. If you were here last week, you know that's a pregnant word, but even if you weren't, just get you up to speed. In, in last week's passage with, of David's adultery with Bathsheba and his attempt to deceive everyone and cover his tracks, it all centers around this verb sending. David is always sending people to do his bidding. And the more David sends, the worse things get. And when David is sending, he is exercising his power, totally separate from his moral responsibility as God's anointed king. And so sending is is the verb whereby David misuses and abuses his power. But after 2 Samuel 11, David's days of sending are over. He is never the subject of that verb again. And now it's God's turn to send a prophet to David. And whenever... Prophets show up in the Bible. Leaders or the people or both are going to hear some hard truths that they don't want to hear. In the Bible, prophets, they aren't, you know, fortune tellers like Nostradamus. They are truth tellers like Nathan. Inconvenient truth tellers. But it's so interesting how Nathan tells David this truth that he knows David does not want to hear, but he needs to hear. He doesn't start with what he says in verses 7 through 10. You are the man. And he says, look at everything God gave you. And that wasn't even enough. You took what wasn't yours to take. And and so now I, I am going to bring a sword and trouble on your house because of this thing that you did. Nathan, when confronting David with his sin, does not begin with you are the man. He ends with it. That's his conclusion, not his introduction. And why he does that, we will get to in a second. But what does Nathan begin with? He begins with a story. A story about a rich man and a poor man. And to us, this clearly sounds like a a parable. But one thing we have to understand, that David's role as ancient king was that he was kind of like the supreme court of Israel. And so one of your jobs as a king is you would sit in the courts, and people would come to you with the really hard cases, and you were expected as king to be the judge. You would decide. You would issue um, your judicial rulings. And so Nathan, as a prophet, you know, he's the type of person who can bring a really hard, sticky case to David. And so it seems like when David is hearing Nathan speak, he thinks he's hearing a real case. A real case that involves a man who is rich and powerful, abusing his power to meet his own needs at the expense of the poor man who is powerless. I don't think we need to read too much into the details of the story. I I find both Uriah and Bathsheba in the poor man. Bathsheba is clearly like the, the ewe lamb in that David takes what doesn't belong to him, But in the story, the rich man slaughters the lamb, which is what David does to Uriah. And not only that, but the poor man uh, is described as having the the ewe lamb eat and drink and lay down with him, which are the three things that David had Uriah do in his contact with him. And so it's a parable, so we're not supposed to map these characters one-to-one 
to the David and Bathsheba story. But what's clear is that David is the rich man. And his crime is a gross, obvious, cruel, and despicable abuse of power and needless taking of precious life. And when David hears this story, he responds like any person would who even has a half-formed conscience. He says, what kind of monster would do that? What kind of horrible human being is this rich man? He had everything. He had more than enough. Why did he need to take from the poor man who had only one thing? Right? The great sin of all isn't, it's, isn't the stealing of the lamb. It's, it's the abuse of power. And we saw last week when, when power, when what we can do is divorce from moral responsibility, what we should do. It creates the conditions for the worst kind of evil in the world. David is furious, and rightfully so, at this grave injustice. So furious that he says, this man deserves to die. Even though in the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the law was clear. If you stole uh, livestock from someone, the, the legal remedy was to make fourfold restitution. Which is what David eventually gets to. But David and everyone else who hears this recognizes that the crime goes beyond mere theft. Because of the cruel heart of the rich man that the details of this crime reveal. The rich man isn't just a thief. No, he's something much worse, something much more sinister. He's heartless. He's heartless. And so David condemns the man, and ironically at the same time, moment he condemns himself david hears the story his anger is kindled and he pronounces his judgment as the lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity he had no pity he had no feelings he was heartless so here david The man after God's own heart sees someone doing something totally and completely heartless. And he condemns it. And then Nathan says to David, you are the man. David had just condemned himself. And so that answers the question of why Nathan doesn't begin with, you are the man. But instead concludes with it. Because Nathan understands something about confronting people with the the truth of their sinfulness. That conviction from within is much more powerful than condemnation from the outside. Conviction from the inside is much more powerful than condemnation that comes to us from the outside. And there's something else that Nathan understands. That it's it's much easier to get people to see the sins uh, and faults in other people than it is to see you know, the sin and brokenness in their own lives. Uh, Sometimes uh, I say you've got to open a window before you can hold up a mirror, right? You've got to look at the the far-off example before you can look at something that's too close because when it's too close, it's it's just too painful to look at too quickly. You you, you can't see it because you don't want to look at it. And so Nathan had to appeal to David's conscience 
before he could challenge David to apply the, the own standards of his conscience to himself. He had to point him to the far-off sin before he could point him to the sin that was in his own house. And this is, this is, this is just true. This is how the world works, I've found. I, I think of one experience I had in, in ministry where someone I know, they committed a really gross act of misconduct. Bad stuff. And, and I was really shocked. One of the things that shocked me about this was, you know, not just that this person did this, but when you brought this up with other people who knew this person and kind of knew what was going on, they didn't share that same sense of outrage or shock. Instead, people sort of start defaulting to a long list of excuses why it's not that bad and it's not that big of a deal. And so you begin to question your own sort of judgment and sanity. And, and I spoke with a pastor friend of mine about it, and he said, you know, Dave, not, not to be flip, but this situation is, is, is what we call a no-brainer. You know, like this is easy to see this is wrong. But the people I knew, they couldn't see it because it was too close. And I wonder sometimes if, if maybe I held up that mirror too soon. If I somehow should have opened a window, shown them an analogous situation in order to exercise their conscience so that they could see the far-off situation was just like the one near at hand. And I think maybe if this had happened now, in our post-Weinstein you know, Weinstein moment, things might have been very different. Because that's the far-off thing that can help you see the close thing. But the truth is this, that, that when it comes to confronting sin, God's greatest desire is to convict us in order to convert us, not simply to condemn us. It, it's easy to condemn sin. We can all get on a bench and start doing it right now. It's very easy to do that. It's a lot harder to convict and convert sinners. And just so we don't get it twisted, this need to be confronted with sin is not for other people. It's for each and every one of us. Every one of us should hear Nathan saying, you are the man or you are the woman, as directed at us. We all like sheep, or rather we all like David, have gone astray. So here's just a a couple takeaways from Nathan's confrontation with David because we are all David and and so because of that we all need a Nathan or two in our lives people who can call us on our stuff who can tell us when we've lost the plot or we've lost our way people who we can trust to tell us the truth and who we can trust are doing so right not because they want to condemn us but because they care about us and our continuing conversion the churchy parlance around this, sometimes people say an accountability partner. Some people find that term helpful. Some people roll their eyes when they hear that. But I know that, it, to me, it's at least an attempt to capture something of what the spirit of having a Nathan in our lives is. So find a Nathan. And I think some, in some ways that's easier than the next one is being a Nathan. Because you don't want to do it bad. I, I think I speak for most people in this sanctuary that it, it's, it's much harder because we don't want to be a jerk or judgmental or confrontational. But the book of Proverbs is, is right. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And so really loving someone means speaking the truth in love when they need to be confronted with something. 
And we see how Nathan confronts David without being confrontational. How he points out there in order to then hold up a mirror so that David can be convicted in here. And so that's a great way to do it. Start with some shared values or an analogous situation and then apply it to yourself. It's a slightly more sophisticated version of, well, how would you like it if? Fill in the blank. And I know that this one is hard. Being a Nathan is, is, is hard. And I've had plenty of conversations with people saying, you know, I know this person. They're doing something that just is not right. And how do I tell them? How do I bring that up without pushing them away or coming off as, as judgmental? And you will not find any easy answers coming from me. But the way Nathan does it is helpful. And the spirit of Nathan is helpful too. Nathan in this situation, he's clearly for David. He's for him. His goal is to reach and to restore David, not to reject David. And so it's remarkable what people will listen to when they know that fundamentally, deep down in your relationship with them, you are for them. Right? You care about them. You want the best for them. You're on their team. And so even if they won't listen to you, or they don't, if they, even if they don't agree with you, they will listen to you. Because they know you want to continue their conversion into who God has called them to be and not simply condemn them for what they're doing. So that's Nathan and, and the hard but necessary task of confronting sin and being confronted with our sin. But now the second thing we're going to look at, which is David's reaction. How he responds and what that teaches about how we can, how we can respond to this confrontation and conviction. What do we do? And when, Nathan hears, when David hears Nathan's words, it, it cuts him right, <laughs> right to the core. Because he knows there's nothing he can say. What Nathan has said is completely and totally true. He's, 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 he's got it spot on. He knows that he stands condemned by the words of his own mouth. And so David, helpfully, does not engage in, you know, the five D's of self-deception. Deny. It wasn't me. Deflect. Defend. Diminish or discount. He doesn't do that. Instead of starting with the five D's, David just goes to the one C, just one letter back in the alphabet. His only response to Nathan is this. I have sinned against the Lord. That's all David says. And so overcoming sin starts with confession. It starts with acknowledging, I've missed the mark. I've, I've, I've left the path. I've gone beyond the boundaries. And in his confession, David, he abandons finally his pretensions of power. Right? He stops giving out advice on other people's lives. You know, the poor man and the rich man. And he realizes who he is before God. A sinner, a person in trouble, a person who needs help, a human being who needs God. Eugene Peterson, a great pastor and author, notes on his, in his commentary on this passage, one of the frequent misunderstandings of the biblical story by outsiders is that a confession of sin is a groveling admission that I am a terrible person. A tactic sometimes described as, quote, beating yourself up. Insiders to the story soon learn that the sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, is full of hope. B. 
because it is full of God. Confession is full of God because it means that we can start living real lives full-heartedly before God. We can stop with the lies. We can stop with the games. We can stop with the pretending that everything's okay and I'm okay and I've pretty much got it all figured out. That we've got it together. Confession is the deep biblical version of the cliche that it, like most cliches, is cliche because it's, it's true. That the first step to getting help is admitting that you have a problem. And so the first step to getting the help we need, which is forgiveness, is confession. Admitting that we've sinned and that it has been against the Lord. And to this you might object, well, 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 yeah, but David should have also added on there, I have sinned against the Lord, and oh yeah, Uriah, and Bathsheba, and all those other people. But I think they're included in David's confession. That every sin is ultimately against God, because when, when, when we sin against other people, or this world, we, we have profaned something or someone that is sacred to the God who made it, and who loves it, and who sustains it, and to whom it ultimately belongs. Confession is the moment in time where, where we can definitively say that we've stopped running away from God and we've started and we've turned back toward him. And so I think that's the difference between Saul and David. When Saul sinned, he, he defaulted to the five Ds. He had all sorts of excuses, all sorts of blame to, to spread around. But when David sinned, he confessed. And so if I were to boil it down to say, what does it mean to say that David is a man after God's own heart, even after this terrible story? It's that David, even in his disobedience, never loses his relationship with the Lord. That everything David does, success or failure, triumph or tragedy, David ultimately relates back to his relationship to the Lord. So how do we overcome sin? We confess. We confess. Openly, honestly, we, we, we own it. But the truth is this. How do we overcome sin? We don't. We don't do it. That's not in our job description. God does that. The greatest miracle in this story comes when Nathan responds to David's confession with these words. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Right? David's confession is met with forgiveness. That's the surprise in the story. Not, not the sin of David. Sin stories are boring. They, they happen every day, all the time. Confession is much rarer. Let alone forgiveness. That's the greatest miracle of all. Sin is, is a given throughout human history. Right? It's, it's as boring as dog bites man. But the forgiveness we see is genuinely unexpected. Grace is the surprise that we don't deserve, but we desperately need. And so how can we overcome sin? We can't. We can confess and we can let God do the rest, which he has. And there are these striking parallels of continuity and discontinuity between this story from the life of David and, and Jesus' life. Right? Whereas David's rule, his kingdom, is overcome by sin. Jesus' rule, Jesus' kingdom, is about overcoming sin. 
David hears Nathan's parable as the judge of the people, and he condemns the guilty man. And in Jesus' life, he is judged, and a guilty man and a guilty people condemn him. Nathan hears David say, you know, or David hears Nathan say, you are the man. And at that moment, he is exposed as a sinner. Pilate says to Jesus, behold the man. And Jesus is revealed as righteous. David sins and doesn't die. Jesus doesn't sin and he does die. And both of these stories center on the death of an innocent and precious lamb. David is like the rich man who slayed the lamb and incurred great guilt. Jesus is the poor man and the lamb whose death took away guilt. And ultimately, the good news is this. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how broken, confused, or lost we are, none of us, none of us are beyond forgiveness. We can overcome sin because Jesus has overcome it for us. And that's why it's so wonderful. Every week we, we practice this. We confess our sins together. We receive this, this news of blessed assurance together. And that's why it's so wonderful that our confession of sin is met with this great assurance, this classic assurance of pardon. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Hallelujah. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please pray with me.